Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is a special edition of the show recorded before a live audience at the Schlafly Tap Room. The subject, Prohibition. 100 years ago, the United States began a big experiment. It banned the sale of alcohol. No longer could you get a cocktail at a bar or a beer at the game. No longer could you buy a bottle of wine, much less a case. The result is not that people stop drinking. For 13 tumultuous years, bootlegging flourished, and bathtub gin killed thousands, even as organized crime put down deep roots. What could convince a representative democracy that banning alcohol was a smart idea? It's easy to laugh about what happened 100 years ago. Then again, our modern society has spent 50 years and a trillion dollars fighting a war on drugs. But perhaps I digress. Joining me today to talk about St. Louis's wild prohibition years is local historian Cameron Collins. He's the author of Lost Treasures of St. Louis, among other titles, and the author of Distilled History, a St. Louis history and drinking blog. So Cameron Collins, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we're joined by Tracy Lauer. She's a corporate archivist and historian at Anheuser-Busch. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. And last but not least, we're joined by Sean Rost. He's an oral historian for the State Historical Society of Missouri and the Missouri Humanities Council. So Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Sean, if you can start by giving us a short version of an answer to a very complicated question, what led the United States to ban the sale of alcohol? Well, it is a bit of a long story in itself. Um, it begins really in the colonial period with the kind of distribution of uh, alcohol and liquor and things like that, but it really begins to get its start in the Second Great Awakening of the mid-19th century as uh, reformers are attempting to perfect society and to improve it. Uh, they begin to key in on alcohol and its moderation, not so much eradication quite yet. Um, by the 1870s, you have groups affiliated with the temperance movement uh, and the prohibition movement, uh, like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who begin to pick up a lot of steam uh, with other women's rights organizations. And by the time we get to the 20th century, you begin to see an affiliation between the WCTU, as they call themselves, uh, and the Anti-Saloon League uh, to push for not only local option laws regarding how a city or a county could essentially pro prohibit alcohol's distribution and sale, but really pushing it at the state and finally the federal level. How much was anti-immigrant sentiment a part of this? Uh, that begins to really kick up around the turn of the 20th century. As you see the increase of immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, uh, many of it is it's tied in many ways to that, an attempt to not just simply uh, prohibit alcohol, but really to Americanize and restrict elements of immigrant, immigration as well as immigration culture towards assimilation. Tracy, I'm wondering, um, the brewers here in St. Louis were obviously a strong force at this point. What did they do to try to head off prohibition? Yeah, I think a, a lot of people don't realize that in the 1850s, a third of the population was German. So that large German immigrant population really led to the establishment of breweries. And so it was a huge part of the St. Louis community. It was something that was you know, embedded in our DNA. And so when prohibition started gaining steam as a result uh, you know, in the early 1900s, um, I think a lot of brewers were trying to, to make sure that they were established as, as an American company and not necessarily part of the anti-German sentiment that was happening in the United States. So 
I think they were really trying to position themselves as being a little bit different than than the alcohol movement, right? Trying to separate themselves. Um, Anheuser-Busch specifically started saying beer is the beverage of moderation. And so trying to take a stance where if you want to prohibit alcohol, we're okay with that. But beer is actually a pretty, pretty great beverage. So <laughs> it's not a bad thing, right? Cameron, uh, for the distillers who were here in town, they must have seen this threat coming as well. Did they try to take steps to head this off? Well, that's a fascinating part of the discussion because the distillers and the brewers really kind of divided their forces in the face of the en enemy, and I do call them the enemy. Uh, and really, if they maybe have united, uh, they would have had a stronger coalition against forces, against their interests. But um, just as Tracy was saying, uh, the saloons could not in any way say that they were a drink of moderation. Uh, the saloons were a huge problem in American society at the time. They were, just as you see them in the old movies, rowdy, loud, abusive places. Uh, and uh, the distillers were the focus of uh, the temperance movement to begin with. Uh, and actually, and you may go into this later, but the, the throwing the brewers in with that was a surprise even to the brewers when prohibition came. They around. thought maybe people would take down the liquor industry, but that they'd be okay, Tracy. Yes, most definitely. I think that was something that they were actually pushing for. You know, saying, "Hey, we're we're really the beverage in moderation. You know, it doesn't matter who gives you that beer; it's going to be the same amount of alcohol, no matter who serves it to you. But a you know a distilled drink, you know, you're getting a gin and tonic. That's very different depending on who your bartender is. So and they promoted the the brewers promoted beer as a family drink. Mm -hmm. Uh, in places such as uh, Bevo Mill, which we know down on Gravoy, and the Feasting Fox, uh, they were places that didn't have, I don't believe Bevo Mill had a bar in it when it was built. Yeah, they if actually it, just served light beers and, mm -hmm. and, and, and light wines and food. And, and yeah, we really tried to position ourselves as, a, as something that could be enjoyed at home or enjoyed in a five-star restaurant, right? It was, it was something that didn't have to be associated with tavern culture. Um, so I think that was something that the brewers really tried to do. And, and as Cameron said, I mean, it really kind of divided the forces where as if they had united together might have might have helped things a little bit. Now, Sean, one part of this that I found fascinating is that women were really leading the charge to try to ban um, alcohol, including beer, as it turned out. Um, but in response, the brewers ended up trying to fight women's suffrage because they thought if women getting the vote uh, got the vote, that would be disastrous. Tell us a little bit about that effort. Yeah, so in a lot of ways, it was assumed that the women's uh, right to vote through universal suffrage would be a kind of united block whereby women would vote all together as a single group on a single issue or issues that they were concerned with. So there was a concern by brewers and distillers that if women get the right to vote, they would all then unite behind prohibition to enact it. When in reality, of course, we realize as soon as 1920 rolls around and, and we begin to see women's voting rights, uh, they're going to vote on personal preference, uh, regional, geographic, ethnic, racial issues that, that are personally connected to them, not so much as the single block as it was assumed. But they sort of took this bet here, and that ended up, I think, making some women angry, where they did end up then oh. opposing the brewers. Cameron, I see you nodding. Mm -hmm. yeah. This backfired for the brewers. The most, I've, I'm a passionate student of this period of American history, and one of the most fascinating aspects is, is the, uh, the role of the woman in this. At the beginning, leading up to Prohibition, and I'm sure we'll get to later 
at the end of prohibition and its repeal. Yeah, in fairness to women, we also did play a role in getting this all struck down, just to foreshadow where Cameron's going. <laughs> I want to stand up for my sex here. Um, let's talk a little bit about the milieu that, that we were in at the time. And it seems like this might not have ended up happening if it hadn't been for World War II, and that's because of the anti-German sentiment that was everywhere. Cameron? Oh, I was going to say World War I. Sorry, World War I. Thank you. <laughs> um, so how much did anti-German sentiment play into the fact that Prohibition ultimately got pushed through. Sean? Well, in a lot of ways, um, there is this concern with World War I about not just simply German identity, German culture, but that there is going to be um, simply, you know, a lot of, of Germans are going to be opposed to our uh, proposed to prohibition and that the war effort is going to be uh, attacked. It's going to be hurt by Germans who are simply aligning themselves with Germany versus the United States. So there was an effort in a lot of ways, not just simply to promote prohibition as a way to, uh, you know, assimilate Germans towards American culture, but really to push back uh, the removal of German language from schools. Publications of newspapers had to be in English and German. Uh, the classic stories of, you know, uh, sauerkraut becoming uh, liberty cabbage and, you know, things like that. Uh, it becomes quite a common I issue of essentially taking away German culture and, and proxy by that way with prohibition as well uh, to really promote kind of 100% Americanism during World War I. Tracy Lauer, how did Anheuser-Busch try to deal with that sentiment that was out there about their heritage? Yeah, I think it was really difficult. I think it was, um, if you take a look at the early Budweiser label, it was actually written in German uh, prior to World War I, and then World War I erupts, and so we decide to make sure that we, we take the German writing off of our label, we make sure people understand that we have German heritage, but we're not siding with the Germans. And so I think we were really trying to make sure that, that people understood where our loyalty lie. And I think a really interesting point that not a lot of people know about was that there was wartime prohibition, right? So in 1917, we're restricting the amount of grains that can be used in brewing beer. And Tom Schlafly can tell you that when you restrict the amount of grains that are brewed in beer, it doesn't taste the same. So people are really losing that taste for what a real beer should taste like. Uh, and so I think that that is really what is beginning, you know, the idea of prohibition and, and um, starting as early as 1917. At Anheuser-Busch, you really see sales drop to virtually nothing before prohibition ever ended and and yeah that was definitely as a result of that i'd like to add a, a quick anecdote that may kind of demonstrate what uh was going on some of the people in the audience may recognize a name named uh robert prager uh this happened right here in the st louis area in collinsville illinois a gentleman named robert prager i believe some he you know he was a german immigrant and he kind of spoke about his german heritage and uh, his co-workers attacked him, draped him in, American, in an American flag, and marched him through town, and then lynched him. His assailants were acquitted in 29 minutes. So there's just an example of what the, the atmosphere was at the time. And that story, Cameron, is shocking because of just how many Germans were living in this area. This mm -hmm. man was, he was not even a, a member of a small minority group. Correct. Do you know what it was that drew the ire of, of the mob to the point that they acted out that way? In that particular example, I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it is, when you are fighting uh, a nationality on another continent, uh, tempers flare. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the best I could say right now. 
We're talking to author Cameron Collins um, of the St. Louis History and Drinking blog, Distilled History, as well as Tracy Lauer, the corporate archivist and historian at Anheuser-Busch, and Sean Rost, an oral historian for the State Historical Society of Missouri. Sean, prohibition relied on states ratifying these amendments. Was Missouri enthusiastic about doing that? Uh, no. <laughs> in many ways, it, it, it is something that takes a very long time. And in fact, Missouri does not come into the prohibition column as a state until after the 18th Amendment is already essentially ratified by the majority of states that need to ratify it. So over time, it becomes an issue where local option laws, whereby a county or a city can decide to be dry uh, versus wet, uh, begins in the 1880s. Um, and it gains steam, certainly by 1917, about 96 of Missouri's 114 counties are dry. But of course, places like St. Louis, uh, areas along the German Corridor, along the Mississippi River Valley are still quite wet. So it takes really until 1918 um, and 1919 for prohibition to finally become a state-sanctioned amendment. And so when that happened, um, walk us through how the law worked. Did you have to get rid of your booze or you just couldn't buy new booze? And if you could keep your booze, why wouldn't you just stockpile all the booze you could possibly buy? Tracy? It was a very interesting law. If you ever have time just to read through the Prohibition Amendment, it's fascinating because they never mention anything about consumption. It's all about production and distribution and, and transportation of, of alcohol. And so I think it's fascinating to see how loosely the law was written. They never even define what an intoxicating beverage is, and what's intoxicating to me is not necessarily going to be the same as what's intoxicating to anybody else on the panel, right? And so there were a lot of very loose, loosely written words within the, within the amendment, and it, it's just fascinating to see how long it took for them to realize, like, oh, we actually need to put some, put some detail behind this very loosely written law. So it's, it's just interesting. So Cameron Collins, for some of the places in town that had been brewing beer and, and distilling liquor, did they try to get a, a big stash put together before this became illegal? I don't know if the breweries did. Uh, I'm sure they did, maybe some of them. Uh, the wealthy certainly did. Uh, they stockpiled, you know, as much as they could. And, uh, you know, there are examples of people setting up enough uh, supply for decades to come. Uh, I mean, this seems wise to me. Right, right. Uh, and, again, it, it comes to the point with prohibition that, especially in the city of St. Louis, it did not stop drinking whatsoever. So. Tracy, what about for Anheuser-Busch? How did they react to, I understand there was sort of like a one-year period where people knew this was going to go into effect. What did they do during that year to prepare for what was about to go down? Yeah, a lot of people, you know, we had started preparing prior to 1919 because of that wartime prohibition, and our production was really slowing down pretty substantially. We were looking at ways to, to make sure that we could stay alive during this prohibition time period, so we started converting some of our... our um, our bottling lines and, and some of our manufacturing to non-alcoholic products. We were experimenting with non-alcoholic products as early as the 1906. And so we were, we were preparing um, for things that we could produce, um, you know, in order to stay afloat. There were about 1,500 brewers in the United States prior to prohibition, and nearly half of them closed their doors and never reopened um, as a result. So I think that's pretty substantial that, that Anheuser-Busch said, okay, our choices are to close or to, to find other products that we can make and that's ultimately what the company did. And what do we know about how bars reacted to this law coming in? Um, Cameron, I assume they did not just all decide they were going to close overnight. 
they went underground. Uh, they, they did close, but they closed. Uh, the, the famous term that we all know, speakeasies, um, became uh, the place where, and a speakeasy could be an underground dungeon with the, you know, you knock on the door and give the password, or it could have been a table and a couple chairs in somebody's apartment. So people were ready for this moment. They weren't ready, let's say that. <laughs> they were never going to be ready, but, uh, um, but definitely people prepared for it. We are talking about prohibition today, and we have a distinguished panel. That includes author Cameron Collins of the St. Louis History Drinking Blog, Distilled History. We're also talking to Tracy Lauer of Anheuser-Busch. She's a historian there. And Sean Rost of the State Historical Society of Missouri. And we've been talking about the fact that prohibition went into effect in 1920. And we know that this became law at that point. But we also know that St. Louis did not stop drinking. Now, proof of that is the swanky New Year's Eve party that took place at the Chase Park Plaza in 1922. Cameron, set the scene for us. What happened there that night? Yeah, this is another one of those. Like, they're tragic at times, but there are some great stories that come out of this period. And, and actually, it was January 1st, 1923. Uh, there were over 2,000 people who signed up to go to the Chase Hotel and celebrate the New Year. Uh, and at that point, the Chase and the Park Plaza were separate hotels. And it was a, a drinker's heaven. There were tunnels underground where you could move between the two hotels and they were filled with liquor. And, uh, and so they were partying well into the evening around 1.30 a.m. Um, probably the most famous prohibition agent in, in St. Louis during that time, a guy named Gus Nations, walks in with five of his of his agents and they start looking under tablecloths which is where people would hide their booze smelling drinks and one of his agents actually lifts the the dress of one of um the patrons there uh she screams her escort slugs the cop and bedlam breaks out and the 2200 people in the room had no interest in leaving and chairs started being thrown plates and silverware one of the agents was uh, knocked over and he fired off his pistol and it winged three of the dancers that were there. And actually, the aftermath is even more fascinating is that the owner of the hotel uh, contested that it was an illegal search because he didn't have a warrant. And even a former federal judge was on hand who sued <laughs> Gus Nations on behalf of the three uh, dancers, and he actually transferred two of his agents out of town to keep them out of uh, harm's way, so. And when you say he transferred his agents out of town, was this considered that this had been a bit of an overreaction uh, by the people who'd broken this party up? I think Gus just had uh, a bone to pick, and he went in on his own, and uh, he, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know the whole rules at that time about busting up a drinking party, but, uh, but he crossed some of them. He crossed the line, and actually, really, what happened there is if Gus went to a back alley saloon and busted up a still, he would have been fine. But he went to the Chase, where the A-list of St. Louis was getting their drink on, and those people are powerful, and they're not going to let that happen. Sean, I want to talk a little bit more about this uh, Gus O. Nations, because he's, he's such a character. How did this end up impacting his career, this raid at the Chase Park Plaza? 
Well, he's still quite active in prohibition enforcement in the city after this point, but his reputation gets, takes a bit of a hit going forward. Uh, he had made a long career before this with the Women's Christian Temperance Union as part of their uh, essentially youth group. He was a leader in that one, a speaker and a lecturer. Um, at one point, he tried to actually run for attorney general of the state of Missouri. He doesn't get past the primary stage of that in 1924. Um, but he's involved with another raid on a brewery in 1924. Um, and his brother, his name is Heber Nations, was the state labor commissioner. And in the process of that raid, um, essentially the and entire- And this raid, this was the Grisadec Brewery, yes, is that correct? Yes, the Grisadec Brewery. Some people may be familiar with that name. Yeah, so essentially what happens is he's involved with the raid and then it's accused by the brewery officials that um, his brother Heber Nations was taking bribe money to not enforce prohibition um, in regards to the brewery. They were making fake beer and then real beer back and forth trying to, to hide it. And this goes on uh, well through the rest of the Prohibition era until finally the case is dropped against Heber Nations in 32, but essentially ruins the nation's family name in a lot of ways um, in not only St. Louis, but in the state of Missouri. So that's an example of how um, some of these parties were policed, and there's one brewery that was cracked down. Tracy, I'm wondering from Anheuser-Busch's perspective, was this something where they were being carefully monitored, or could they just continue to quietly make beer on the side and find ways to get it to people? Yeah, you know, it was some. it's something that's really fascinating. We see a lot of brochures and, and information that was produced during the Prohibition time period. I just was looking at a, a pamphlet that we have in the collection called The Penalty of Law Obedience. So that's how Anheuser-Busch felt about it. Like, we are actually following the law and we're being punished. And so what Anheuser-Busch did is we, we tried to lobby for the law to be repealed, right? And we said, as ridiculous as this law is, we are going to follow the law and we're going to do what we can to, to try to repeal it. So I think that it, you know, people had a variety of different options, right? They could violate the law. Um, and I don't think Anheuser-Busch had any idea that people would be so willing to violate the law. They thought everybody's going to follow it. And then they started seeing things like this happening at the Chase and other places. And they're like, wait a minute. But we continue to follow the law and, and do everything that we could to kind of get it repealed. Still making a lot of different products um, outside of beer, um, but, you know, just trying to keep, keep ourselves afloat. Can I ask a question to Tracy? So sure. one of my favorite stories about Anheuser-Busch during Prohibition, and I think it was Augustus Bush who said, or at some or August Bush had said, we turned into the biggest bootleggers because you would go into a grocery store and you would find Anheuser-Busch yeast sitting next to Anheuser-Busch malt, and, and basically you gave the ability for customers to go home and brew their own beer in their basement. Yeah, we, I mean, we made about 25 different products, and we did have baker's yeast, and we had barley malt syrup, and we had all of the ingredients, but, you know, people weren't able to make beer as good as we were able to make it. Of course, it. of course <laughs> not. Right? So they had the ability, and they tried, but, you know, I think that by providing all these different options, yeah, we had, we had a variety of soda products, you know, I mean, because bathtub gin doesn't taste good. Nobody drinks grain alcohol because they love the, the flavor it, you know, gives off. So we were making ginger ales and sweet sweet tasting sodas so that those could be mixed as cocktails but um yeah sean i'm wondering um did the home brewing industry have sort of a, a heyday during this period once the big guys could no longer provide us with the beer we're all used to drinking i mean certainly to an extent there is attempts on the localized level in the homes uh, in private stills to develop 
bootleg liquor to not only provide it for the home, but also to sell it locally as they could. So in a way, we see, especially across the state, a lot of arrest for essentially raiding of stills on farms and in homes and in basements and things like that to become quite notable uh, and actually carry a lot more of the arrests of the era with these kind of home stills than it is for the kind of larger brewery arrests. We're talking to Sean Rost of the State Historical Society of Missouri, as well as Anheuser-Busch corporate archivist Tracy Lauer and Cameron Collins, um, the author and the publisher of the history drinking blog, Distilled History. Cameron, my, my quest- next question is for you. Yes, there were some of these small operations making booze in the area, but a lot of it was coming in from elsewhere. Do we know how the bootleggers were getting their liquor into St. Louis? Well, uh, it's why St. Louis became a city to begin with, I would imagine, that we sit at the confluence of the two biggest river systems in the United States. Uh, And even at that time in America's history, St. Louis was still the hub of getting, you know, to other parts of the country. And I'm sure that um, that played a huge role in St. Louis, um, along with other topics we've talked about, a large, very large German population, a very large Irish population. Those two groups were not going to tolerate not getting a drink. Um, Now, we've all heard about Al Capone's rise in Chicago was fueled by the fact that the gangsters were the ones who were getting liquor to the people who needed it. In St. Louis, were there gangsters that were basically running the distribution systems here? Yeah, this is one of those topics where Chicago gets all the glory, but St. Louis is is just as good. I don't know if that's the word I want to say. But we had uh, a very violent, uh, colorful gang history here in St. Louis with gangs with names like the Green Ones, Egan's Rats, the Pillow Gang, uh, Russo's Gang, uh, and they were uh, notably two gangs, the Cuckoos, which were based in Soulard, and they were a gang of, of diversity, you would find Czechs and Jews and uh, Irish and Italians fighting uh, Egan's rats who were uh, in, an Irish, and they would, there would literally be gunfire like in the streets, notably right down uh, at the corner of 14th and Locust, just a couple blocks down. There was a, a shootout in a bar called the Submarine Bar. It was called a soda pop bar. <laughs> On the night that Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney fought, a bunch of guys walked into that bar and just opened fire. And uh, people, people died, people were shot, and uh, everybody knew that the Cuckoos did it. And, and nobody ever, you know, nobody was ever arrested. Now, in terms of our friends across the river in Illinois, um, a man there named Charlie Berger has often been called the area's most notorious bootlegger. Sean, who was Charlie Berger? Cameron, who was Charlie Berger? (laughs) He was, yeah, he was like Southern Illinois' like gangster. Mm -hmm. And I, like when I was first looking into him, Tracy and I were talking about him. And what I also want to mention about him, which is notable, is um, along with people who didn't want to let him have a drink, his main enemy was the Ku Klux Klan. And that was another group at the time that was very pro-prohibition because you can imagine they were anti-immigrant and they did not want, they wanted people to assimilate into American society. 
Um, so along with uh, extreme bootlegging in southern Illinois, um, he was at war with that group. And Tracy, you told me a great fact earlier. Yeah, I was trying to do some research on him, and he was the last man to publicly be hung in Illinois in 1928 um, for committing a murder. Um, and he was publicly hanged in in the square. And this was in the course of his bootlegging that he ended mm -hmm. up taking down a rival gang member or, or something yeah. like this. Mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned the Ku Klux Klan. So they were almost an enforcement arm of the state in some parts of rural America. They were there trying to stop people from, from being able to have their booze. Um, did this end up being good for their business, so to speak, when alcohol was banned from the land? Cameron, any thoughts on that? I don't know. Sean, like, Sean, I saw you nodding there. I think you may so, know. So Gus Nations, as we bring up from before, right? <laughs> Uh, his brother Heber was not only state labor commissioner, he was also the head of the Ku Klux Klan in Jefferson City, uh, as well as a very prominent official in the Klan across the state. Um, so in a lot of ways, what gets him in trouble and gets him out of his state labor commissioner later on uh, is simply from the fact that the Klan attaches itself to a lot of local police departments and sheriff's departments to go on these prohibition um, raids of stills in a lot of localized areas. Um, so they become essentially tied into not just simply local law enforcement, but also then tying themselves to whatever political party was in power at the local level that was enforcing prohibition. Thus, they kind of gain uh, a level of political significance during the 20s that may not have been seen, if we can think of in the earlier Reconstruction era clan. So certainly, uh, the enforcement of prohibition laws uh, was something that the Klan not only backed, but also actively was involved in through these dry raids across the state. We're talking to author Cameron Collins, Anheuser-Busch historian Tracy Lauer, and Sean Rost of the State Historical Society of Missouri, and our topic is prohibition. Now today, we think about prohibition as a free-for-all where everybody was a flapper and everybody was drunk all the time. Fact check for Cameron Collins. Is that really what happened? I mean, the 1920s were a fun time in American history. Uh, <laughs> there was a good time to be had. Um, we actually have a great question from one of our audience members here tonight at the Schlafly Tap Room. Michael asks, what kind of people sought out illegal alcohol? Were they on the outskirts of society or just normal people? I mean, really, it's kind of anybody who's interested in consuming alcohol, perhaps partying or things like that. I mean, certainly there's a bootlegging element to all of that. But in a lot of ways, people who are going to skirt the law are people who are comfortable skirting the law, feel they're not going to get arrested for it. Um, and people who were looking for alcohol to consume, I would assume. <laughs> we also had a couple of, of guests who are asking about the fact that um, both Catholics and Jews needed wine for religious reasons. How did prohibition affect their ability to get that? So there's attempts in a lot of ways to restrict, of course, alcohol, but there are some exemptions, of course. Um, in the case of Catholic uh, wine for mass and as well as wine for Jewish uh, ceremonies, those to an extent are exempted in some cases. Also, if you are going to a doctor uh, for any sort of malady, your doctor could technically uh, prescribe you alcohol if you had the right situation, of course. Uh, that fell within the law. Now, now Sean, um, what, what kind of situation might qualify one for an alcohol prescription? Any number of them, really. I mean, headaches, uh, any sort of issues. I mean, uh, if the doctor could prescribe it and the law allowed it, you technically could get the, the alcohol that you needed. 
Now, we've been laughing a lot about all this illegal alcohol that people were drinking and the fact that people still found ways to get drunk even though the government cut off the supply. But there's a very dark side of what was happening during Prohibition, and that's the fact that people were dying. And of course, today, people do die from alcohol, but it's usually not because they're drinking contaminated alcohol. It's, it's because we drink too much of it or we do stupid things after we drink it. But I'm wondering if, if one of our guests today can speak to this idea of why this quote-unquote bathtub gin was able to kill people. Uh, yeah, I, I've studied this one extensively as well. Uh, and another, and Sean, you mentioned this, another reason that alcohol was still being produced was for industrial purposes. You know, who knows what to, I don't know, buff a car or something like that. You needed alcohol to do that. And so people would steal or acquire uh, this, you know, grain alcohol. And um, to improve the taste of it, they would add flavoring to it. And in reaction to that, the government, to keep people from drinking this stuff, started putting additives in the alcohol like formaldehyde and sulfuric acid. And it didn't stop people. They continued to drink it, and that's where the term blind drunk comes from, because you drink sulfuric acid or formaldehyde, you're, you're literally going blind. I read an estimate somewhere that um, you know it wasn't just 1,000. It was more like 10,000 people may have died from drinking alcohol. And the other reason there is that making bathtub gin was far easier. You know, basically all you were doing was, was getting uh, straight alcohol and adding some sort of flavor to it, other than putting up an illegal still, which the, the, you know, the dry agents could find quickly by either smell or sight. Uh, it's much easier to get your fix through that, those forms of alcohol. And that leads to a great question that comes from Madeline. Um, she's asking, when Prohibition was starting, did people think it would be permanent? Or was there always a sense that this was going to be a temporary thing? Tracy, I'd love your perspective on that. Yeah, I think Anheuser-Busch did take that perspective of this is not going to last forever. This is a really horrible idea. And I think that's one of the reasons that we stayed open. We, we decided to do what we could within the law and, and make products that people could potentially enjoy. Um, none of those products took off like crazy. No, you know, sales weren't through the roof. It was really just basically trying to keep, keep people there um, and keep our bottling lines up to date. So I think that, that Anheuser-Busch took the stance, this can't last forever, and really worked to lobby against um, prohibition, uh, you know, and, and try to get repeal to, to happen. Now, Herbert Hoover was nominally dry. He supported the cause of keeping prohibition in effect. And he was elected president in 1928, and he was running against a Catholic who was very outspoken about the fact that he wanted to repeal prohibition. That was um, Al Smith. And so when Herbert Hoover won, it seemed like a huge setback for the people that were working to repeal prohibition, and yet it wasn't. It, it didn't turn out that way. Sean, what finally led to repeal? Well, in a lot of ways, repeal comes about um, for reasons, simply put, uh, related to the Great Depression. Uh, you can think of the, uh, the depression in and of itself with the stock market crash, but there's an agricultural depression happening earlier in the 20s. So when you have farmers who are making the products that could make alcohol who cannot make them, that hurts their ability really to make money and things like that. Uh, additionally, uh, the issue of you know the sell and sale and manufacture of alcohol that can be taxed by the government. So in a time when you need revenue uh, to support government programs to kind of help. 
uh, fund roads and things like that, the ability to tax something was quite lucrative. And in a lot of ways, this is something that brings about uh, the changing of the guard in which a lot of people begin to turn uh, in favor of it. And finally, uh, the people who thought that they had finally done it, that they had passed prohibition and that it would last, they, some people assumed it would last forever, um, the law-breaking, uh, the uh, police looking the other way regarding um, you know, breweries making beer and bathtub gin and things like that, um, and the crime, or the crime wave that's going on, a lot of that begins to kind of breaks people's psyche in the sense that this is a successful law, and to the point by you know the 30s, the majority of people are turning against it. And Cameron, um, you and I had earlier been joking about the fact that yes, women did bear a lot of responsibility for pushing temperance and pushing prohibition into law, but there was also one woman uh, who's profiled extensively in a book we've both read who was really one of the key figures in getting it repealed. Mm -hmm. Let's give her a little credit here. Yeah. Pauline Sabine, uh, she was, uh, I believe, the first woman to be a member of the National Republican Committee, something like it. But anyway, she is covered extensively in a book by Daniel Ogrint. Uh And really, she kind of got fed up. She was a uh, pro-prohibition, and, and, but then just like much of the country, she started to see where it wasn't working. And she became very upset with the Women's Christian Temperance Union taking this claim that they spoke for every woman in the country. And suddenly she led the charge to a shift where women started to become uh, pro-repeal and she was a key figure in that. A socialite woman transformed mm -hmm. our fortunes. We're talking to Cameron Collins, who's an author and runs the Distilled History blog. We're also talking to Anheuser-Busch historian Tracy Lauer and Sean Rost of the State Historical Society of Missouri. And we have a lot of great stories about things that happened in St. Louis during Prohibition that we're gonna try to get to and a lot of good questions. But I do wanna get to this happy moment here. Um, and this is, what happened in St. Louis on the day of repeal? Tracy. Uh, it, it was such a, yeah, such a happy day. You know, um, <laughs> we can all just clap. <laughs> well, we knew that prohibition was going to come to an end. And in Missouri specifically, we approached the state of Missouri. Anheuser-Busch approached the state of Missouri and started, uh, asked if we could brew beers we had done days prior to prohibition, and then we could make it available. So on April 7th, that's the day when beer actually became available. And that was much before the full repeal of prohibition, which was in December. So at Anheuser-Busch, there were 20,000 people that gathered outside of our bottling facility, just a small crowd. Um, and we were able to start shipping you know, Budweiser out one minute after midnight that evening, and people were so excited. Um, August Jr. was there. He addressed the, the nation on KMOX and, uh, you know, really advocated for the full repeal, but was really excited that we were able to produce our primary product. And for Anheuser-Busch, this is the time when we introduced the Clydesdales. Um, so the Clydesdales, which is, oh, good. Um, so that also happened in April. So it was a symbolic gesture. Um, the head of the company was August Sr. His two sons uh, worked for the company at the time. And they gave their dad an antique beer wagon and a six-horse Clydesdale hitch. And they said, remember the good old days? Remember the 1800s when we used to have to deliver 
our beer with horses and wagons. We want to get back to those good old days. And so that, of course, uh, the Clydesdale Hitch went to Washington, D.C. and delivered that first case of post-prohibition Budweiser to the president. And another hitch actually went and visited the former governor, Al Smith, and gave him a case of Budweiser because he deserved it as well. Um, and of course, today, the Clydesdales are used uh, all over the world to celebrate our brand and our company. So it's a really happy time. And so this was a great time for Anheuser-Busch. And the company was very well positioned coming out of this because they hadn't completely shut down. Sure. Um, but many breweries didn't make it. Um, do we have any sense of, of just how many competitors were slayed by these long years? Of yeah, nearly half of the brewers in the United States closed their doors and never reopened. And, and I think even when Prohibition ended, Anheuser-Busch was so excited that we were able to produce beer again. But the American taste palette had changed so substantially during Prohibition, right? So wartime Prohibition really restricts those grains in 1917. And think about not drinking beer. This is a very sad thought in your head. But don't drink beer for 14, nearly 14 or more years. And then when beer gets reintroduced, you, you maybe don't remember it tasting that way. You're, you've been drinking these sweet-tasting sodas. And so for Anheuser-Busch, when Budweiser was reintroduced in 1933, we thought consumers would embrace it. But instead, they were like, I don't remember it tasting like that. It, you know, it, it tastes hoppy and it tastes, you know, malty. I, I don't remember that. I want something sweeter. And so for Anheuser-Busch, we, um, we looked at that and said, this is ridiculous. We've been brewing Budweiser since 1876. We're going to stay true to that recipe. And instead, it did a marketing campaign that said, hey, consumer, drink nothing but Budweiser for five days and then try to go back to that sweeter tasting beer. <laughs> You're going to immediately recognize how great Budweiser is and how bad that stuff is. And it was a really successful campaign. But if you think about it, 14 years, that's a long time to be without beer. And, and you know, just think of depriving yourself that long and then reintroducing it to you. It takes I, a while. And I have a good story. There's, I believe there were eight breweries that tried to reopen uh, after Prohibition, and most of them shut down right away. And there's a good story. I think the name of the brewery was uh, Scholl Kolkschneider, I believe. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds familiar. They were up in North City, and uh, basically when Prohibition was repealed, all of these people came out of the woodwork to open up these breweries again that had been sitting dormant for 13 years. Well, they decided to just start brewing again after their fermentation tanks had been sitting in water for 13 years. And I read a quote uh, at one point where somebody said that um, the best tasting beer in St. Louis before Prohibition was uh, Green Tree's Buck Beer, and the worst tasting beer after Prohibition was Green Tree's Buck Beer. <laughs> so, like some of them, you know, unlike Budweiser, and that was probably part of their success, was you kept your act together while Prohibition was going on, where these other places just. They let their equipment fail, and they, and they started producing very poor quality beer, and people didn't like it. And one of the things I've read as well is that this didn't just sort of change our taste for beer. It actually changed Americans' drinking habits. Um, in one way, people did end up drinking less after Prohibition than they had before Prohibition. It also led to changes about how women drank. Cameron, are you comfortable speaking to that? Yeah, before Prohibition, uh, it, it, you would not find a woman uh, it's very rare to find a woman drinking in public. Oh. And, uh, you know, Prohibition brought, you know, to, to drink, you had to go to a party or whatever, and it became part of the culture. 
Um, so I'm very grateful for prohibition because <laughs> it brought in a whole other half of the population and they make the party a, a hell of a lot more fun. So. <laughs> we did have a, a, a couple of good questions from the audience related to Lemp Brewery. And I don't want to put our guests on the spot, but I'm hoping somebody might have an answer for these. Um, did AB and Lemp have a friendly rivalry or a tumultuous relationship? And this is from Jeff Best. Um, he asked, and did they join together during Prohibition? I think they definitely did have a, a friendly rivalry um, prior to Prohibition. And, um, you know, they were, they were pretty close together. Um, and, you know, they were definitely competition. Um, but I think that, that Adolphus Bush and, and um, Adam Lemp really had an opportunity to, to make sure that they understood that although they were competition, they were in the same, you know, in the same family doing the same type of business. So they um, worked together on some things and, and um, definitely uh, understood that, you know, there was power in, in working together. Um, so I think that ultimately they, they did work together, um, but they had two very different views on, on prohibition. You know, they, they closed their doors and never reopened. Um, Anheuser-Busch decided to, to kind of make their way through the prohibition time period. So, I so think that was where the two divided. That is why Lump closed. Mm -hmm. And did they doubt. try to get it restarted after the fact? Cameron? No, uh, Lemp sold uh, Falstaff, his, his flagship brand, to uh, a guy named Papa Joe Grisadek, mm -hmm. who uh, launched the brand again during Prohibition. He sold hams, if I remember. Like, well, Anheuser-Busch sold uh, malt neutrine. They mm -hmm. sold hams. And uh, it became, a, Falstaff became a completely separate company. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, William Lemp committed suicide unfortunately. Because so. he was distraught over um, this company closing. Yeah, he sold uh, Falstaff and then he sold his uh, brewery to the International Shoe Company, which is why you see ISCO on the smokestack there. Uh, and uh, that was that's a very tragic time. That happened uh, repeatedly. I mean, there were several instances of that in St. Louis. Uh, the first, they actually, the police even called it the Dutch Act. Uh, another famous brewer named Otto Stiefel same family of the financial company in his brewery, which still stands at Gravois in Michigan, he was the first of the St. Louis breweries, brewers to commit suicide on the, on the, on the eve of prohibition. So on a, a slightly less sad note. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, that, I mean, this is history. You know, it, it has its twists and turns. And here's a little twist. Cameron, can you tell us the story about the Jack Daniels warehouse on Duncan Street? Oh, I thought we were going to get to that. We're but I guess, so this is just, I know a couple of people, but this is a great story during Prohibition. And it was uh, 1923. Uh, Tennessee enacted Prohibition before the rest of the country, or there were some others as well. So uh, a guy named Lem Motlau, who is a grandson, I believe, of Jack Daniels, moved part of the operation here to St. Louis out of Tennessee. Where our IKEA is is exactly where the building was where Jack Daniels stood. Uh, you know, and so there was this huge warehouse filled with hundreds of barrels of, of Jack Daniels whiskey. Uh, and on one evening in 1923, um, and of course, that the crooks had some kind of connection there, uh, led a hose of 150 feet and actually drained 893 barrels of Jack Daniels and replaced it with uh, water and vinegar. Oh. 
they left one barrel so their connection could, you know, test it to make sure that it was still there. And it wasn't discovered until a month later that all of that whiskey had been stolen. Uh, and uh, they were eventually prosecuted. Lem got off, actually. But, uh, um, I mean, in literally almost 900 barrels of whiskey were stolen literally while there were federal, federal agents like looking over all of it. So just a fun, there's some fun St. Louis history for you. Looking back on this experiment, um, years of alcohol being banned, what's your biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway is, is, is prohibition was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> a terrible thing, but however, it, it really did some good. Americans drank three times as much before prohibition as they do now. So a little uh, moderation, not a bad thing. More moderation. And, you know, we, we kind of had to get things under control a little bit, and I believe uh, prohibition did that. And it, I believe prohibition laid the groundwork for women gaining the right to vote. That's where they got their organizational skills to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, although drinking is excessive in, in some areas still today, uh, you know, but it's, we've got things a little under control now, maybe a little bit. So. Well, Cameron Collins, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. And Anheuser-Busch Corporate Archivist Tracy Lauer, thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you. And finally, Sean Rost of the State Historical Society of Missouri, thank you for being here. And we want to thank Carroll House Furniture for sponsoring this Kitchen Sink Series event. And a special thanks to Schlafly for hosting us in their tap room, our sound engineer Aaron Dorr, event coordinators Leslie Davis and Sophie Brose, and producers Evie Hemphill, Lara Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. And to everyone joining us at the Schlafly Tap Room for this special edition of St. Louis on the Air, thank you and have a great evening. <laughs> Monday on St. Louis on the Air, we'll talk to the man who visited just about every one of the 190 churches in the St. Louis Archdiocese all in one year. We'll take a ride on the Ferris wheel, and we'll get the scoop from our friends at Sauce Magazine on their night moves. And by that, we need an evening with multiple stops. Drinks, dinner, dessert, or drinks, games, dinner. The options are many. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.